From Sin Media in Melbourne, you're listening to Great Minds Don't Think Alike, a podcast all about neurodiversity. Hi there, you're listening to Great Minds Don't Think Alike, a podcast all about neurodiversity. For, for this episode, we'll be joined by myself, Christian. Myself, Cal. And Julia. So, um, unfortunately, this is going to be quite a heavy episode because this has been a fortnight of really very disheartening and shocking and appalling news. Mm. And so, appalling reactions to the news as well. Yes, yes, indeed. So there's going to be a bit of, we're going to talk a little bit uh, amidst all of the, well, content warning, abuse, murder, imprisonment. Infanticide. Uh, infanticide, uh, victim blaming. A lot, of, a lot of uh, atrocious stuff. We, we will also be talking a little bit about famous people with autism, famous people who are neurodiverse, just to light things up a little bit, but also to have an intelligent discussion too. But yes, like we said, we're talking about some pretty heavy stuff here. So if you're affected strongly by the kind of things that we're going to be talking about, remember there is Lifeline that you can call 131114, also Beyond Blue, one three hundred two two. Four six, three six, and of course, kids helpline one eight hundred five five, one eight hundred, if you need it. Yeah, just remember that's there. Yes, definitely. and proceed with caution through this podcast. It's important that we talk about this mm. stuff, but of course, it's a. Really I mean, we don't yes. like talking about it. No, no, no we, we, which much rather we, be talking about happy things. Yes, like cat but, videos. Exactly. <laughs> or talk videos or whatever. Um, um, well, I talk, like talking about horrible things in terms of philosophical concepts, but that's just me. I'm weird. You are weird. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, content warning, as we've said before, murder, filicide, abuse. We're going to go through a lot of stuff. So, the first thing that we will be talking about is there has been a murder-suicide in Georgia, in America, where a mum has killed herself and killed her disabled son, Dustin Hicks. Dustin was autistic himself, and the news coverage originally labelled this incident as a mercy killing. Um, This was 11 Alive, which is the NBC Atlanta news service, and um, it called it a mercy killing. What happened shortly after was that the Atlanta chapter of ASAN, which is the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, basically rallied people to send messages to Eleven Alive, basically saying it's a murder-suicide. Can you please call it a murder-suicide? It's not a mercy killing. Calling it a mercy killing is a really bad thing to do. So basically that happened earlier this week and it's pretty awful because incidents of filicide or where parents or carers kill their kids has become somewhat routine in America. Assan seems to, you know, have reports of these incidents, you know, every other month nowadays. It's pretty awful. So your thoughts? Well, you said we were talking before how, um, you know, to the point where they developed a toolkit as well, an anti-infanticide toolkit. That's yeah. that, it's that much of an ongoing issue. Yeah, basically, the Autistic Self Advocacy Network, which is the American-based one, they have a anti-filicide toolkit, which is actually worth looking at if this is something that you know is an issue that might be affecting people in your community. But it is so bad that it is kind of like it's gotten to the point where you need it. When we talk about these sorts of things, very few things on earth can be classified as mercy killing, philosophically speaking. Uh, 
Well, utilitarian would have said this is mercy killing because they're utilitarians. Um, we don't really like utilitarians. <laughs> <laughs> when you talk about these sorts of things, people try to sort of empathise with the murderer because the murderer is a mother and she's obviously not coping with her children. For me, it doesn't matter if the child's autistic. If you're considering murdering your child, you're probably not fit to be a mother. Or a father or a caregiver. Mm. But in mm. this case, it is mother. Yeah. When people attempt to try and empathize with the mother because they're trying to get to the logical step of what would it take for me to consider killing my own children? And they don't usually see a limit to that. So they immediately think, wow, this person must have had it really, really bad in order to consider such a measure. But, and I do say but, these things are usually committed out of fear, emotion, and irrationality. Whenever you have a mass shooting or an infanticide, people try to rationalize it when you really can't. When you have a situation like this, it is driven so far by irrationality that it cannot be justified by rational means. Even if the mother was pushed to the limit, you need to examine the circumstances surrounding it. Is there a culture that misses this is there did the mother have adequate support when you put all of these things into perspective then you can start treating this as a symptom and rather than a cause that's definitely a good way of looking at it and i think it's important to remember that i think the media plays and i'm always a little bit i guess media is sort of what i what i always think about so it's always a thing that i will probably criticize first irresponsible media is also a problem. Calling it a mercy killing is irresponsible journalism. It shouldn't have been done. It shouldn't have even been thought of. I don't understand why they would have called it that. Um, As I said, very few things on this planet qualify as mercy killings. This is probably not Mm -hmm. one of them. So that's sort of where I first sort of look at it. I study media. I know that media contributes a lot to how society views things. That's that's why you have to be quite responsible if you're in the media. And I think it's important to really push home that someone who is young, someone who might have a quite profound disability, who might not be understanding what the situation is, he needs to be protected by other people and he would have expected to be protected by his parents. That's what it comes down to. There's also this sort of attitude, and I think this might be more of a cultural thing, because in Australia, I think you can get away with slapping the parents around a bit, that what automatically, and especially this is true for mothers, if a mother does something to her child, it's automatically seen as, that was necessary. And you sit here and you go, well, okay, fine. Um, You just murdered your children. You probably failed in the most profound way of ringing your children by killing them. Yeah, uh, And this goes for sort of like smaller things like mothers condoning very bad behaviour in public. <laughs> I only use this example because I'm heavily exposed to video games. Them buying video games that are rated R18, that pisses me off to no end. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But there is this sort of unassailable authority that is imposed upon parents in terms of their children. And whenever you go out of your way to question that, people tend to have very, very slight why are you doing this? This is not your child. This mm. is their parent. Stop questioning it. But I feel like when it comes to murder, though, uh, well, like normally 
when it comes to murder, it seems that people have no trouble like questioning <laughs> that the mother knows what she's doing. Mm. Um, well, but if that, it's a murder I, of an autistic child, that it's very disturbing. But that seems to be the exception here. I mean, also we had the, we had a case in Australia a while ago of a husband who killed his wife, who had sustained a brain injury, and also killed his children and himself. And at first, there was a very much a oh, you know, this this guy must have had it so rough. You know, he was caring because one of the kids was also disabled as well. He he was a carer, you know, all this, all this stuff, all these issues, and it's kind of like, no, he, he killed a whole bunch of people who actually had, you know, something to look forward to. And that's a really violent act, but everyone was talking about it, or a lot of people were talking about it, as like, this guy was driven to doing this horrible thing, when that's not what it is. It's, he could have sought help. It just seems, yeah, it, it seems to get... As soon as you throw disability into the mix, maybe it's even broader than that. People seem to think that it's an exception. Well, I don't think it is because, as I said, when, oh, no, when, I when, you, but... when you're talking about philosophy, like, for example, there is a documentary about the death penalty, and they said it's only relevant because the person who was arguing for the death penalty wanted the state to kill him because he had murdered his three children with an assault rifle. And these instances are very rare because parents usually don't survive the, them murdering their children because they usually turn the gun on themselves immediately. But he offered a very rare insight by the fact that he had been all completely and utterly irrational during the murder of his children and then come back and inside the court of law argued that the judge should give him the death penalty for, and in a very rational way. He basically said, stated that I was not okay when I did that and punishment for such a crime I should be killed for what I did and I have no qualms in saying that but yeah well, well, well I guess the main point there is that he, he saw it as himself having no excuse for it that it's uh, yeah that's not something that can be condoned sympathised with mm. it's... but when you classify something as sort of like a mercy killing inside this way it cheapens not only the justice but also the crime yeah, yeah back to the the incident. Yeah, it's it's awful because it has become routine. It kind of feels like just yesterday I heard about, you know, London McCabe getting killed, which happened about a year ago. And it's it's just, it's, it's really awful. And it's really awful to see, you know, people on commenting on Facebook being like, oh, you know, the mum must have had so, must have had so bad. Well, what about the kid? Um, <laughs> you know, the yeah. kid's the victim. Well, that's the stem of my argument. People try yeah. to empathise with rationality. Because they think, wow, what if I was inside the situation? Under what circumstances would I kill my children? Well, people shouldn't be trying to rationalise it because it's irrational. Hmm. So that was one of many stories that happened over the last couple of weeks. We also have um, what we have dubbed... Okay, what I have dubbed... So we've got cell-like room gate and we've got chain gate. It just makes you... It's, it, it has become routine, and I think it's important to kind of show that issues of restraint and seclusion in Australia, because, I mean, a lot of the time I feel like people in Australia, the autism community, feel like, okay, we've got it so much better than we do in America, where America's got autism speaks, America's got all these murders that happen, like, every other week. It's, it's actually important to talk about stuff that's actually happening in Australia and actually showing that it's just as bad and it's just as routine. And I feel like... And then, I, I would argue that it's not as bad due to cultural relativism. Uh, America has a very, very big master complex, which is why you see more deaths happening there. Inside Australia, it's just because we're so 
hardened to the facts and realities of life. We're just like, eh, you can take it. It's fine. But and it's still it's still bad, I think. And I think it's yeah, important. Yeah, it is, it is still bad. You see, I've seen people who are like, hi, I'm really interested in becoming involved in... I remember reading this person's post saying, oh, I'm really interested in fighting Autism Speaks and fighting the Judge Rodenberg Centre. I'm living in Melbourne. I'm like, well, there's plenty of problems in Melbourne with autistic kids that you can think about right now. Um, you don't need to go to America to yeah. think about issues that's happening to people on the spectrum here because unfortunately it's not as bad but it's still bad and I want to also show that so sometimes what I say I say whatever it is gate and it started with cage gate and then it was box gate then it's like room gate and now it's chain gate and the reason why I do it is to kind of show that this is something that is happening all the time and it keeps on popping up and it's the same story and it's the same thing that we'll respond to. Yeah. Going into the more delicacies of the story itself, the boy that was chained down, there are certain situations yeah. where you do need to restrain your child if he's hurting himself or hurting anybody else. However, the specifics of this case was that the child chained her son down, restrained him, and then went out to go food shopping. If indeed restraint is required... And I would say it's very rare... And also, no chains. This child was just, okay, I'm going out. Well, I'm going to chain you up so you don't run away. Um, yeah, he's, he's not a dog. Yeah. <laughs> this this act has completely denied the child's human rights mm. and his human dignity. And there is going to be a lot of discussion about this. And, and it's going to be the same, oh, this family has probably been in this horrible situation, probably didn't know what to deal with, well... Partially, but yeah, okay, my kid's having a tantrum. Well, this kid might not have even been having a tantrum or anything. But you don't chain up people. It's like a sign of slavery. It's subhuman. And that should just be unknown. It's just, do you have empathy? Yeah, this is ironic. This is really ironic. When, when, When autistic people are kind of just, you know, lecturing you guys on empathy... This is when you kind of have to learn how to mm. be empathetic. No, yes. it's really crazy. Like- <laughs> what Julia and Christian are referring to is the fact that one of the symptomatic diagnoses of autism or autism spectrum disorder is a lack of reflective empathy. Reflective empathy. Yes. Not actual mm. empathy. Yes. Not feeling feels, but... Well, okay. Not it's, showing feels. Feeling yeah. feels is, is a bit nuanced because reflective empathy is basically, oh, I've been in this situation, so I'm going to feel exactly like that because I can reference it inside my mind. Anyway. The the full story is that a mother of an autistic boy allegedly chained the kid in his Western Sydney home when she went shopping. The family is from Sudan, which is going to be an issue that will prop up because maybe there was cultural issues, maybe there was language issues. However, I should mention that our friend... Ahmed Youssef, who is from The Race Card, a really good show from Sin, yes, I'm cross-promoting you, who is from East Africa. He was saying, bull, mm. <laughs> it's not a cultural thing in a, anywhere in Africa to chain up a kid. So if they are going to say, oh, I'm from another country and this is why we did it, he's not taking that. So if there is issues of culture... No, there isn't. Um, there should be like just a general consensus around cultures don't chain up people because that's pretty bad. Oh, I don't know. They do chain up criminals. But is a 16-year-old boy just living his life with a disability a criminal? 
just by default? Again, this sort of the situation implies that the mother couldn't bring her son out to go shopping with him. The boy's 16. If indeed he does have an intellectual disability, you could have either A, left him at home, or B, taken him with you, and both of those would be acceptable. What, indeed, what rationalisation could, could have occurred? Say, I'm going to restrain you inside the house. I have no idea. I'm it's sitting just... here and I'm thinking, okay, or maybe if the kid is having a tantrum and you are forced, indeed, to restrain him because he is hurting himself or other people, that would require a lot more attention than him leaving immediately after to go food shopping. For example, mm. you might want to call the police or an ambulance or something. That seems to me like an emergency situation if you need to restrain a 16-year-old male who, yeah. as I said, the only time where relativity. I would, the only time where I would ever think of restraining anyone is if they were literally trying to kill me or trying to kill someone else or trying to maim someone else. Unlikely that this is happening here. Again, when we examine these sorts of things, it's, it becomes very, very difficult because we impede criminals. So we technically restrain people who steal from other people, who do commit violent acts, as you said. But I'm saying, like, me as a civilian... Yeah. Um, not as a police officer, but as right. a civilian, the only time I would imagine me restraining or imprisoning someone is if they were trying to kill me or someone else or trying to maim me or someone else. If there's a direct mm -hmm. physical threat, that's when I'll do it as a civilian. If I was a police officer, that's a different story. Yes. <laughs> but as a civilian, no. Yeah. And when we talk about these sorts of things, especially when we're talking about restraint, i.e. kids getting locked inside cages, cell-like rooms, or being restrained at home by their own mothers, we're talking about what authority do these people have and what actions should they take depending on the situation. We deem that this restraint was immoral and unethical due to the circumstances, especially with a cage inside a school. What would require a cage? Like, I grew up inside a time where corporal punishment was kind of allowed, and even the threat of it would... If I was being basically a little shit, which you can imagine me doing, because <laughs> I, I don't like to blow myself up a lot, but... I am extremely intelligent, but I do find ways. I will find a way. Even the threat of my dad going, oh, fine, I'll go get the wooden spoon. I would just, I'm like, no, we're not doing this. I'm going to stop whatever the hell I'm doing that's pissing you off, and I'm just going to sit here, and I'm just going to hope that, okay, all right, you're walking back, and you don't have the spoon inside your hand. Cool. Many people today find it completely unacceptable. Even the threat yeah. of corporal punishment. Oh, and yes, there was the. There has been an article comparing it to the the torture methods used by the CIA. Um, yeah, which we'll get to as well. Yes. So there's been an op-ed in um, the Brisbane Times that we shared on our Facebook page because we like sharing lots of things on our Facebook page. And the headline was "Schools Treat Kids with Autism Like Terror Suspects," which is a really interesting read. But another thing, just going back to, um, so the child in this incident was chained to a bed essentially, so it couldn't move. Okay. And there's been other incidents of this happening to autistic people. So a while back, about last year, there was a 21-year-old who was restrained by hospitals, like basically just left kind of shackled. Mm. Um, I can't remember his name. This should be a one million freak incident, but um, they're not. I believe Stalin has a quote here. <laughs> it happens to one person, it's tragedy. It happens to a million people, it's a statistic. Unfortunately, yeah. It's the statistic now, yeah. Okay, James Pascoe. I got his first name right. So last year there was an autistic man 
who was shackled by um, the hospital. The family was obviously really against this and, was, and there was like lots and lots of um, change.org petitions, petitions against yeah. it. I think he was eventually freed, which was good, but it was just really awful at the time. Another really, really awful incident was in 2008, 16-year-old Callista Springer died in a house fire and she was ha- chained to a bed in her home. She tried to escape, but... She was imprisoned. She couldn't move. She couldn't move, and she basically burned to death. And she was autistic, and this was in America. Her parents weren't charged for murder, but they were charged for torture and child abuse. So this is something that has been reoccurring as well. Uh, uh, well, so the James case with the hospital, I think I'm probably immediately more sympathetic by the fact that the hospital did it. If indeed there was abuses taking place, this is also obviously very, of course, very serious because it goes against the, the hospital's very nature and cause. We're supposed to be preventing harm, well, not causing issue, it. the issue that, and I've just gone back to December 2014, so he, he went to the hospital and it was just like an ordinary issue and he wasn't being any way aggressive he was just sick but they decided to just put him down like that they didn't know how to calm him down so because they didn't know how to calm him down they decided okay what's the best way to calm this kid down okay we'll shackle him up that's a really logical way of calming someone down instead Mm -hmm. of perhaps speaking to his mother um, mm-hmm. and say, okay, look, you have to just be more... The purpose behind that sort of policy is that, well, let's, let's say this case, and I'm not justifying it, but hospitals, they do get to a point where, okay, we can't calm this person down, all we have to do is prevent him from, you know, punching his hand through a window. But this ultimately created, you know, I'm looking at a picture of him at the time, and he is not in any way healthy. He wasn't... A safe space for him to be in. It wasn't a safe position to be in. He couldn't move. He's bleeding. It wasn't good, and it wasn't good practice. It was completely negligent. I can't say negligent. Negligent. (laughs) Yes. Again, when when we do talk about, especially about hospitals and about police officers and all these other public services, sometimes they can fail inside their duty and their care. All you have to do is make these incidences rare very rare occurrence. If indeed there was a failure of communication on the part of either the hospital or the autistic man to say, hi, I'm just sick and I'm kind of, can you, can I get some treatment? And the hospital is going, okay, you're paranoid. We're going to strap you down into the bed because we think you're paranoid. These sort of communication failures that create this policy failure. But I am sympathetic towards hospital because they have these sorts of policies in place. They're just like, okay, our action's on if... However, unfortunately, this was, like, yeah. the first thing that they thought of doing. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that kind of pisses me off. Like, mm. I can understand... Well, maybe they panicked. Well, but they, they're not supposed to panic. They're the hospital. They're supposed to be professional and supposed, supposed to deal to with emergencies. And, like, mm. okay, yes. look, I totally understand in, like, perhaps a situation, and this is something that happens in ERs quite often, where you get someone who is really, like, full-on aggressive... Hi, I'm high on drugs. I'm literally punching on. Yeah. I can understand why they might have to be restrained. That makes sense. This person was not like that. This person mm-hmm. was probably having a panic attack, just mm. freaking out, being a little bit like, what the hell's going on? Because they had an intellectual disability. What you need is liaison, not restraint in this issue. Mm. And, and really, I mean that that should be part of the hospital training. It's, it if it's a hospital, to tell the difference between that. He'll just be lying in bed, yeah. and he'll still be, and he wouldn't be doing anything, but he'll still be restrained. 
So that's the thing. Like, I can kind of understand, okay, kids having a panic attack, what do we do? Okay, we'll, we'll get to nurses and make sure we just hold them down while we do tests. I can understand that. But just, hi, I'm just waiting in hospital. I'm still restrained. That doesn't make sense at all. So there's that issue, and we've kind of gone around and around. Um, but there's more to talk about because this has been a fairly awful week. So, again, basically on cage gate, not cage gate, um, chain gate, yes, there'll be issues because this family might not have had as much access to resources, but as, as we were discussing in scene, you know, it's just because someone's from another country doesn't mean that it's fine. It's mm-hmm. not acceptable. It's never acceptable. Abuse is never acceptable. We're sounding really bullshy, but we kind of have to be. Then we've also got yet another case of seclusion and restraint in schools because... It's a recurring theme. It's a recurring theme. We've also got exclusion from schools. We've, we didn't do a gate. We did hashtag our formal with you. A bit like our ride with you. So there was an autistic kid who was given a formal invite, but apparently, so for a, for a school formal, but apparently there was an accident to send it. Yes, and then that that invitation was retracted. I did read that you know, then the, the mother kept uh, investigating into it and found out that there was, there'd been all these other things that, the, that she never even heard about or that think maybe even the her son hadn't even heard about, like camps and excursions and things that the school just assumed wouldn't apply to him and he shouldn't go on, which the, is there, alarming. The, the excuse offered was, mm. I don't know what he would get out of this. Mm. Again... Friendship, socialisation, fun. Yes, if The indeed same things as his peers. Yes, yes, if indeed the person in question has deficiencies in certain areas like socialisation, why would you then go out of your way to exclude him from such activities that would improve it? Exactly. Because this is not something I understand. I mean, you use the word negligent before, Julia, and that's um, when I was just starting to read this, that's that's the only sort of, again, trying to rationalise, okay, what what could they have been thinking? Um, you know, and not knowing the background of this, this student, you know, sometimes that is, of course, an issue in schools as well as hospitals. Mm. Um, you know, if he, if he was a violent kid and if he'd been on, say, the Year 11 formal and there'd been, there'd been an incident, then they wouldn't want him to come to the Year 12 formal. Okay, that I can understand. But, this but yeah, like this is... The year 10 formal. Yeah. It's like... It's oh, like it's his first one. All right. I reckon if the kid is, is mm. fine at the school, which this kid is, mm. you know, surely he would be fine being going to camp, going to anything else. And plus, it's his right to refuse it. Yeah. It's an invitation. It doesn't mean you automatically accept. Like, he was quite keen, apparently, about going to the formal... It's just stupid. And it's you, like... I know. And if you do accidentally send an invite, uh, I mean, isn't that just a blanket thing? But, you know, if, if you've, okay, if you've accidentally sent an invite and it's, it doesn't really matter if they accept, you know, like it, it's a really, really rude thing to then just say, oh, sorry, that was an accident. Yeah, yeah. Again, it comes down to the empathy. Think, think how you would feel if it's, if you got a message like that. Say, oh, it, it, like, it almost you, sounds yeah. like uh, machinations inside 17th century France. <laughs> it's like I am going to invite you to this lavish dinner. <laughs> oh wait, you're that you're the yeah. you're noble of Orleans. Well, mm. I'm going to disinvite you because I think you're a butthead. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so something <sighs> happened. Everyone got angry at it. Well done for getting angry at it. Yes. Going to the formal. Oh, formal with you. Hashtag. Yeah. Um, then we've got our other mm. one, which was cell-like room gate. So in Queensland, a um, autistic boy was put into a cell-like room. The mum spoke out about it, which is really good, and it's really good to see 
parents and sometimes teachers speak out against abuse that's happening at schools. Um, I would also like to mention that if you are a teacher, you you have mandatory reporting responsibilities. This uh, not, not as well as a moral obligation. Yeah, true. But, I mean, like, this is the thing. Like, I mean, my mum's a teacher and she has to report on abuse if she sees it, even if she's outside of school, even if it's abuse outside of school. That's, I mean, at least it's a thing in, in Victoria. I'm not sure if it's a thing everywhere else. But it might be really hard to go against the school that you work for. It might be really concerning because you you obviously work there. You don't want to lose your job. However, as a teacher, it's more than just having that job. It's about looking after kids, making sure that kids are educated. And it's also about making sure kids are safe. You have an obligation to the child over... The the school that you work for. You're supposed to be engaging in dangerous ideas, not in dangerous practice. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's a very dangerous mm. idea. I'm like, you know what? If it means that you guys get sacked because you spoke out against abuse from the school, that's okay. But you just mm. have to speak out against abuse. I mean, that's a very scary thing. And I can imagine that if you are a teacher, that would be really horrible because, of course, you need a job. But, again... You guys probably know it better than me if you're you, a teacher. You should embrace, embrace your utilitarian philosophy. What would happen if... Or a consequentialist utilitarian philosophy. <laughs> what would happen if you didn't? Yeah, exactly. Your first priority is kids. So make that your first priority. Yeah, just good recommendation for anyone who sees abuse. Report it. Yeah, report it. Um, mm. It's horrible that we have to talk about it, but at least we're talking about it. Yes, I um, didn't think people needed to be told these things, but apparently they do. So, yeah. all right. And so we've talked about a lot of stuff. I'm probably going to wrap up all this horrible, horrible discussions, but there is a lot of stuff on our Facebook page, including cat videos, because <laughs> we realised that we're, we're discussing a lot of really difficult stuff, so cat videos and things from BuzzFeed that are funny would help out. Yeah. But we've got a couple of op-eds as well. So um, Catherine and Nia from the Autism Self-Advocacy Network in Australia and New Zealand wrote a op-ed called Why Australia is Afraid of Autism. Um, in response to a lot of these issues. Um, it's an interesting read, and I would recommend reading it. Another thing that we've shared, which we've mentioned earlier, was the op-ed in the Brisbane Times about how schools apparently treat kids with autism like they're terror suspects. That's an interesting article, definitely worth the read. If you want something that will kind of make you feel a little bit better, and I read this today and I felt like a little bit better. The Autistic Family Collective wrote a letter to everyone because there's a lot of issues going on this week. It's kind of just like a really sort of nice affirmation of, you know, look after yourself. Yeah, we get that it's horrible to hear all these horrible things in the news, but look after yourself and come back and you'll be okay. So that's a good thing to read as well. And I read it in the morning. I was like, yes, thank you so much for this. Hi there, Christian and Cal again. Hello. And uh, we, like a lot of people in the autism community, heard the, well, some people are calling it news, um, that Eminem is, might be, seems to be, suge- has suggested that he is. <laughs> people think that Eminem is autistic. So, of course, you know, as soon as I heard Me. this, I, I jumped onto it. Like, has he said this in an interview or something? He said it in his rap lyrics. I don't really know if that counts. Mm. Yeah, there's hard cold evidence for his psychological profile but still like the fact that he's rapping about it I have to say is is a good interesting subject matter to cover of course we would know that we talk about it all the time so 
just purely like from that perspective, is a great thing to talk about. It's probably better bread and butter for him at this point. What is? Oh, him talking about difficult subject matter. But, you know, of course, autism and Asperger's aren't inherently difficult pieces of subject matter. They just can be difficult for some people. Like, the follow-on effects of certain things interacting with society can be difficult. But in of itself, it's not a difficult thing. It's, it's just a fact of life in the community and, and a part of your identity. This has uh, sort of led on to sort of the discussion of famous people and or people who are known and whether they might be autistic or not. And this isn't sort of speculation. Yes, yeah, so, because of course there's yeah. speculation that's completely um, rampant. Yeah, kind I, of like the rates of uh, autism diagnosis, it tends to be mostly males from what I can see. That is, you know, famous it has, males it has been speculation called, is. It has been called basically a male disease. Um, And this isn't misogyny. It isn't sexist. It's just that the issue here, of course, is the guy who made the diagnosis material was himself a male. So there's a little bit of projection in there. And he does come from a period where you didn't have so much rigorous, subjective scientific testing for, you know, creating such terminology as syndromes and stuff. I know, I know. But I'd say for that belief to be continued, that it's a male thing, would would be sexist. There would be gender bias there if it's continuing in this time now of scientific rigor. The only um, reason why it, it continues is because that's, that sense of projection and that... Because the progenitors are so hard to shift. Somebody makes something that is either male or female slant, it's very hard to push it into the center, purely mm. because... Oh, if we're changing the diagnosis criteria, does that mean that all these other people who don't conform to this diagnosis criteria suddenly aren't autistic anymore? And it's a very hard thing to do. With the DSM-5, they've just basically said, Asperger's doesn't exist anymore. But anyway, famous people who may or may not you know, speculated to be uh, to be autistic. Um, well, I, I, as like yeah, as someone who enjoys acting myself, I find it interesting how many actors are associated with this and, and granted it seems to be mostly male actors um, Yeah, that's because you know, most males are diagnosed. Uh, yeah, but uh, just off, off the top of my head, there's Keanu Reeves there's Tom Hanks, there's Robin Williams there's... Keanu Reeves? Apparently Apparently. Yes. Okay, so at, yeah. least, at least speculated In the same way that Eminem is at this point because the, the, yeah. the issue is, of course that Eminem is a poet, essentially because that's what rap music is, it's poetry Yeah, 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 it's, um, and, you know, and especially slam poetry and rap there's, yeah. there's how and, do you split the two, and, really And like in Shakespearean times, they can basically create the role of the speaker which isn't exactly the person and Eminem has been known to adopt a speaker role throughout his entire career. For example, the real Slim Shady, that's a speaker even though, you know, he used it as an excuse to get away with criminal things earlier inside of life. But yeah, exactly. So yeah. he has been, yeah, you know, he's been talking about autism, but well, Asperger's specifically head on in his in his lyrics. But as far as I can tell, only in his lyrics, um, in terms of what he's said, when he's clearly stepped out of that speaker role. Uh, I know in, in an interview he referred to himself as an idiot savant rather casually obviously not with a you know the psychological knowledge to really understand what the savant mm. is um, but yeah look he could well be if not autistic neurodiverse that wouldn't surprise me there is this self-deprecation that's kind of unique to Eminem because he is a white rapper in a mainly black dominated art form yes. and the way that he views himself might be a bit tattered and worn in the fact that he has had to prove himself so many times to the entirety of what he's trying to do. Mm. That being said, of course, I know a couple of actors who much like yourself. You know, Dan Aykroyd is very, very vocal mm. about the fact that he has Asperger's. He was one of the Ghostbusters. Oh, just before we finish on, on Eminem, so what you were talking about there, about the difficulty and feeling the need to prove himself and feeling yeah. 
you know, out, out of place. That's certainly something that many people on the spectrum have experienced. This is why I tend to go on so much about, you know, if you're autistic or not as special as you think you are. There's certain things that you might have experienced that many other communities, many other people will experience for different reasons. So, so maybe, you know, maybe that's part of it. If he isn't autistic, that that's part of the autistic uh, experience that if there's any theory to. to kind of be probed from this it's there is a large segment of, of the the Asperger's and autism population what I like to call self-deniers that is they, and this usually happens when they've got diagnosed at like 21 or something and they get told they're autistic and they just go yeah no and then the psychologist is like no you, you do reside on the spectrum and the patient itself just goes that's not relevant I've already gone through everything. It's fine. I'm not going to call myself autistic because, like, I haven't done that inside many, many years. And I can empathize with this position because, like, I probably would have been a self-denier myself. I wouldn't be here if I was. But, you know, the problem is that I was diagnosed before. The doctor said I would be completely okay with, you know, the rest of my life. And I would have minimal issues with it purely because I had the capacity to cope with it both intellectual and emotional which is kind of uncharacteristic of people who reside on the spectrum and for me the song lyrics in question just point towards this sort of like this denial it's like oh this doctor told me I, uh, I had Asperger's it was a really rare condition yeah screw you you told me what to do you're an authority <laughs> like most rap music does oh yeah well when people are in denial about it i guess i sort of feel two ways because on on the one hand it, it very often stems from a lack of real education or understanding of what autism actually is so when you get given the label there's certain images that there's you know, certain stereotypes get conjured up that don't apply to you so it's very difficult to, to know what someone uh, is really saying when they say I'm not autistic, they're denying it, or they don't connect with that label. Are they saying they don't conform to those stereotypes, which is fair enough? Or are they just saying, well, I that identity doesn't really connect with me, that label doesn't really connect with me, which at the same time, if that's a personal choice, I would probably say is fair enough. That's, that's Most... kind of the thing with autism being so widely misunderstood, is that it's, it's actually really difficult to know what someone means when they if... say... If word in, autistic. And as I said, that's just sort of the theory that I wanted to probe out. If indeed Eminem is autistic, he probably would have been an early self-denier, which is kind of rare. And I reckon that's probably because of his upbringing. He probably got told he was autistic and just said, there's so much other things that are going through my life at this point. I don't need this. My mother doesn't need this. We're fine. Don't worry about it. Don't bring it up again. It's fine. Because like, Eminem grew up poor grew up mm-hmm. ridiculously poor and again when you have that sort of resistance to somebody telling you something is wrong and i think it's because of relativity and relevance when you have so many other things going on inside your life being told oh plus this this is the th- big thing you should worry about it's just like no i need to figure out how i'm eating tonight this isn't relevant to me which is probably the most logical form of this denialism that i can probably fathom out of this. The thing, you know, the thing, of course, General, with autism is it's not necessarily a problem or a negative thing or something that's it's, something it's, that throws us. Well, yeah, when you first find out, it's something that it's is, framed as a negative does, thing. Yeah, when you first find out about it, they immediately assume that you're going to have all of the difficulties. And as I said, Dan Aykroyd is very, very vocal about the fact that he is autistic. He's also a very, very he's at this point a very aged man, and. What he tends to allude to on the subject is that it didn't change him as a person. So, again, it's not relevant. What didn't change you as a person, exactly? 
again, it's kind of like this concept of the separation of autism from the person as a concept. It comes up with the theory that I am supposed to exist as I am now, being autistic. There's no other way for me to exist. So why would I worry about it? That's just how okay. I am. Oh, right, which I do agree with. So he's, he's accepted it. Yeah, he's accepted it largely. Hmm. But again, because he's an old man, I don't think he cares enough. Uh, enough to give it any massive philosophical probing. Yeah, uh, look, I, I guess not. And there's acceptance on the personal level, uh, whether or not you choose to connect with that label, but there's also acceptance on the wider societal level, which is why it's so good that he's speaking out about it, because... Yeah, when someone talks about autism, it's difficult to know whether they're talking about the real autism or the cartoon autism sometimes. The caricature. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but there are a couple of names that I didn't know about, like Rowan Williams, apparently. Yes, which doesn't really surprise me, to be honest, because there's some people when they find He wasn't find very out, vocal about it. <laughs> he wasn't, no. He's, again, his choice. But, and he's, but, also an, he's also, you know, he was an old man at the time. Um, so I think I that probably comes to the territory. I don't know when he was diagnosed. Yeah. It's just something I've heard about him and Tom Hanks. But yeah, one of the first things that some people think is, what? but he's not shy. He talks a lot. He's so outspoken. He's so extroverted. I don't think he is. Because, you know, I'm sure there's, you can even, you know, sort of see it just from not knowing him personally, but knowing of him or, you know, knowing him from that sort of footage screen mediated kind of connection. You can see that there was a difference between Robin Williams on stage or, you know, Robin Williams in front of a camera playing a character and Robin as a person. Basically, he saves, he certainly seems like he saved his theatrics for the stage and the camera. Robin Williams, he seems to me to be a very introverted person because he's so out yeah. there on stage. Cause yeah, exactly. People are usually the opposite when they go back to their personal lives. This was just him and his outlet. I don't want to postulate anything because I have great respect for the man. But it, it just seems to me that he seemed to be very, very interpersonal. He knows exactly how other people feel at any given point in time, which is why he was so good on stage. And mm. he, he knows that most people want their private time. If he was autistic, his autism and, and that would certainly match each other. They would go hand in hand, I would expect. But it's interesting how many actors are autistic. I mean, you know, that, of course, sort of brings up the question of aren't all autistic people actors in some way? And then you get to think... What are they little, acting? Uh, you know, the neurotypical drag, as, as some people like to refer to it as. And yeah, okay, fine. We, you know, we all have our parts that we play. But I guess from where I could take it is that if an understanding of body language and um, vocal intonations and nonverbal communication, all of that doesn't come to you naturally and you're sort of learning a little bit more consciously, I guess for some that would make you more more naturally analytical of it and more aware of it and you know it could even make it easier for you to manipulate it if need be in order to play a character it's, it's something i'm you know, like as an autistic person who does acting i can certainly relate well, you, to you are to, yourself yeah. an actor do you yeah. employ that sort of those autistic traits in order to hone your craft or do you usually find that you have to go all right now i have to go straight back to me acting like a neurotypical and then layer this character over it uh, i mean i'm playing an autistic character at the moment so it's only the one layer for now or maybe yeah. not even the one layer because i have so much in common with the character i'm playing now but yeah it's uh i have thought about that like do i have to apply those two layers do i have to first of all get rid of my autism and then put a character on top and that seems problematic anyway because i like, you know, what, what do i become if i take away my autism i'm sort of like this mangled 
version of myself. It's too. It's, well, every it's, actor yeah. has has to ask themselves the question: Am I getting rid of myself to play a character? Yeah. Oh, which, oh, of course. Yes. <laughs> which is strangely referenced in Tropic Thunder, but you know. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I, I suppose I am. But doing stage, obviously, you have less opportunities to look back and watch yourself. But when I do, no, I don't really think I've totally gotten rid of myself. I, all my autism, like, I can still just sort of see the signs of it in any character I play. Yeah, that's a good thing. You don't necessarily have to take it off completely yeah. to, you know, to play a character. Well, I, I used to be very stone-like when I was younger. I, we were given an assignment where um, there was this book that we had to read, and the main character was autistic, and it was deliciously obvious that he was. Is this the curious incident of the dog? Yes, I think it was that one. By Mark Arden? Yes. Yes. And our teacher basically got us down right. Okay, write this story from a neurotypical perspective. And then I had to pull her aside and go, yeah, that's physically impossible for me. And again, I could pretend that I am, but this puts me at a remarkable disadvantage compared to the rest of the class. I know. And that's really a whole different thing because I don't really know what the point of that would be because it's difficult with the character of Christopher Boone because while he's an interesting character, what is there to his character? His autism, she's never explicitly referenced to but very clearly implied autism and not really that much else. Sort of that is his character, his autism. And mm. it's depicted as, like, permeating everything he does. So that's one thing. But also, I hope more teachers would think about that possibility. What do I do if I would have a person in the class who's neurodiverse? It comes back to sort of, like, the question of, is it okay to speculate? For example, you might have a character inside a film or a book, or you might have an actor inside real life who has all of the traits but hasn't said it himself or herself. Or Well, if it's a real person... Uh, yeah, well, then... if it's a real person, then obviously you have different moral quandaries. With a fictional character, it's obviously better morally just to go, hey, yeah, I think he's autistic because yeah. I have evidence and we can postulate this evidence. Indeed. And it's not just analyzing the character for me, but it's also being aware of the person who's writing the character, the person who's created the character and their intentions rather than like purely like treating You're... the characters. Well, you have to be real. careful not to yeah. commit the intentional fallacy. Eventually, well, the author will be lost to time, and there will only be the story. Yeah, and I know, but I'm, you know, if the author is still alive, and if it's a very recent thing, yeah. And I, I, I know, I'm normally I'm, I'm steer well clear of the intentional fallacy, and I'm not too interested in the whole guesswork of what did the writer mean to do, but what did they actually do? But sometimes it's just very obvious. Like, say, you know, Sheldon Cooper, pretty much written from the DSM four diagnostic criteria, as we've spoken about. Yeah, um, pretty much. You know, you can just sense the intention sometimes, or, or at least, you know, the, the inspiration that they might deny in an interview, but it's... But, you know, by the same token, Hannibal, Brian Fuller, his character, well, it's not that they said, like, oh, he, he might be or he not be, or, like, I wasn't expecting him to say he's definitely autistic. He just said he can't be because he has, and then listed a few things that are actually experienced by many people who are autistic. But anyway, this speculation business, for some people it doesn't really matter having that label or not, just as long, for some people it's more about Yeah, as I said, the only reason why we can talk about Eminem and all these other mm. actors is because Eminem has alluded to it, and that's why we're discussing it. Probably more than alluded, I would say. <laughs> Mentioning a, a medical label in your lyrics is probably more than alluding. I would call it alluding if he was, I don't know, talking about bright lights, liking structure... Uh, Ordering things by colour and by number. Yeah. If it was just talking about, like, quirkiness, mm. I would say that was alluding. But mentioning Asperger's in your lyrics, that's more than just alluding. Anyway, anyway. So thank you very much for, well, for sticking through all that heavy stuff earlier on, which was obviously very, very important to talk about. And 
really, really important to be aware of. To get to the light stuff about celebrities and acting and even the intentional fallacy. Speculation. Yes. Yeah, thanks thanks very much for listening this fortnight. We'll be back. Remember, we're on Facebook and on Twitter. Oh, yes. And we have a blog. Yes, indeed. We have a blog. So, yeah, if you're looking for something to do in between now and the next episode, and you feel like writing a piece about neurodiversity, send it through to us gmdta.media at gmail.com and yes thank you very much for listening to Cal myself Christian and Julia earlier on in the show and it's quite likely that all three of us will be back for the next episode or you may even hear some different voices who knows Mm. thanks very much for listening have a very good couple of weeks tune in soon for the next episode